Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to do a theme this week, equality. And instead of me giving a big long windup about equality to start, Edmund has had a list of things about equality that he's been perusing, a list of things. And I'm going to start by asking Edmund what he's been thinking about as he's been perusing this list of things. And from there, we're going to develop off. All right. It's a little experiment. I know it's a little different, but uh, give it a chance. Let's see how it works. All right. So, Edmund, you've been perusing this list of things. What have you been thinking about as you've been perusing this list of things? So, uh, the first thing I think about when uh, considering the idea of equality uh, and the thing that runs through the whole of the literature on the topic is what is equality? Um, I think what one helpful place to start, uh, as with all questions about philosophy and political philosophy, is what um, uh, is the Stanford Encyclopedia of uh, Philosophy, which is like Wikipedia for academics um, of philosophy. And uh, in the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia um, article entry on equality, um, equality uh, quote signifies correspondence between a group of different objects, persons, processes, or circumstances that have the same qualities in at least one respect, but not all respects. And uh, this is contrasted with with identical objects which share all of the same uh, qualities, um, while similar objects or persons have a great many of the same qualities, so they share approximate correspondence. But equality is where you've got correspondence in a in a specific respect. So it's similarity. Yeah. So you got yeah. you got a yeah. couple of of areas there, right? So you've got for one, what are we comparing? Are we comparing individuals? Are we comparing classes? Are we comparing groups? Are we comparing countries? What what are the things being compared? And then what's the currency? of equality? Are we talking about their resources? Are we talking about their well-being? Are we talking about uh, maybe capability? There are lots of different currencies and lots of different units in theories of equality. Mm. Mm. Right? Right. Were there any particular currencies or units that you felt particularly drawn toward or not. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, one way of summarizing uh, th- that would be, uh, as, as the sampling encyclopedia article also says, equality essentially consists of a tripartite relation between two or several objects or persons and one or several qualities. And then the question is, what is the quality? So, uh, you know, what, what is the currency? So um, I think... Um, the one interesting distinction is um, between um, equality of resources and equality of status. Um, I, I think this is a somewhat more interesting distinction than uh, the more widely known one about 
a quality of opportunity versus a quality of um, outcome, because often both these are used to talk about forms of a quality of resources or a quality of resource outcome or a quality of resource opportunity. Um, both are often used to refer to what people have materially or what people are capable of having. Um, so, so, either, so either leveling the uh, resource distribution to allow people to have uh, um, similar outcome, similar material um, um, outcomes, perhaps economic or health outcomes, um, or their opportunities. And a lot of the academic debate centers on uh, how radical the concept of opportunity is, um, um, because there's the notion that uh, to be equal, in this sense, you would have to have equal luck. And so you don't necessarily have to have the same thing as somebody else to be equal to them, but you would have to have equal luck. Um, and that's a specific sense in which equality of opportunity is, is cashed out. And so, and this leads into yeah. a big discussion about what the boundary is between merit and luck. Yeah. And how much yeah. falls under the purview of luck as opposed to merit, and particularly in liberal theories of equality, which are very centered around uh, merit and, and deservingness and trying to equalize the things which don't fall under the purview of merit or deservingness. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, in that sense, it kind of results from a, yeah, as you're saying, a, a peculiarly liberal conception of desert. Uh, of what people deserve um, because it kind of assumes that there are some things that aren't due to luck that are due to that are due to um to you to the autonomous individuals right, free right. choices yeah 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 and that 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 assumption of autonomy is quite um it, you know is is problematic and i guess you know this notion of equality therefore raises Another important liberal conception, which is the conception of liberty, and uh, specifically the conception of liberty as autonomy, as you know, the individual's ability to set l the rules for themselves. Um, uh, uh, the, the word autonomy having two parts, um, auto, self, and uh, nomos, law, so self governing self law giving you know setting rules for ourselves um which isn't something that's strictly speaking uh, you know possible in the world of uh in a deterministic world where we're ruled by laws of physics and uh laws of kind of um of change and uh or in, in a world where we're politically going for equality right because in yeah. a world where we're politically going for equality we have to set up rules that will get you equality understood in some way and those rules will of course conflict with the self-rule of autonomy right right which is why uh, there have been attempts to water down the conception of equality uh, to make it compatible with uh Liberalism, though at the same time, arguably, equality is quite a modern concept and quite a liberal concept anyway. Um, and, and so there is the question of, you know, whether it can be generalized beyond it. Um, well, I would say so is equality to a significant degree, at least in the way it's being used here. Equality is also a very modern and a very liberal concept. Did I say, right? did I, did I say equality? I, I, yeah, I, I meant to be referring to 
Uh, quality. Yeah, both the quality and the Batia. Uh, yeah, both. Both of them are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting yeah. how they both are, and yet they are often positioned by theorists as being in tension with each other. When well, in practice, liberal legitimation stories draw on both concepts. They, 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 they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, there, ha- there are conceptions of equality and liberty that aren't liberal. I mean, we see a discussion of uh, different ideas of equality in, in Aristotle, and we see uh, ideas of you know what freedom means in in, in ancient in, in, in ancient writers uh, and different conceptions of. Uh, of what what might be called today liberty, though though the terms liberty and equality aren't aren't used as much then as they are now. Um, well, and, and thought of very differently, and they're thought of right? very differently, yeah, and defined differently. We, we yeah, which gets to the issue of of, of definitions, and uh, I think yeah, if we, as well as the distinction between the kind of a uh, uh, quality of opportunity and equality of outcome in this in the broader concept of equality of resources there's the distinction between uh, equality of resources and equality of status so people are often talking about material equality but there's also kind of social equality of 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 recognition of people being valued and respected um and um right and all yeah. of these distinctions fall under the purview of different currencies of justice Right then, there's also the question of what are the units that we're comparing. And most of the time, when liberals are talking about is it about status, is it about welfare, is it about opportunity, they're talking about comparing individuals. So, another liberal component of the way that this stuff gets conceptualized is to co- is to use the individual as the unit of comparison. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the ways in which it's been changing recently is that increasingly, instead of using the individual as the unit of comparison, there has been a tendency to use the group, the racial group, the ethnic group, the gender group, the, the demographic group, the generational group, and comparing groups rather than individuals, right? And of course, you could also apply this to, say, classes. You could have economic classes that you compare, right? Mm. But the tendency in a lot of the contemporary literature is to presume that the thing we're comparing is individuals. And then because they're, they're, uh, we're comparing individuals, you get this question about future people, right? individuals who don't yet exist, and whether these theories can take them into account, given that they lack some of the ontological being that the units typically require, that being actually being existing individuals. Yeah. Whereas if you talk about something which is not reducible to particular people, but more amorphous, like a group or a class, then when you're making comparisons across generations and timescales, you don't have this problem of the fact that the uh, particular people in question don't yet exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also among states um, about, I mean, in fairness, there is actually quite a lot of discussion of equality among countries among states um among different um economies and yes under the under the purview of global justice yeah under that yeah under that purview um yeah yeah and and i guess comparatively less on uh on say something like classes i guess partly because uh, and, and this is you know something that people don't pick up on much though you i remember um brought it up on the episode on 
uh, marks uh, uh, Benjamin where you noted that exploitation is the thing that Marx is focusing on um, and not equality. And one of Marx's arguments against the the Lasallian socialists is that the problem with focusing on the distribution of resources as the problem and therefore as a quality of distribution of wealth as, as the answer is that it fails to attend to the actual social relations between people uh, and um, these relations of exploitation for Marx are more important than uh, the the different quantities of wealth that people get as a result of these relations. Because the problem, what's morally relevant here, is not um, is not what people have uh, a, 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 as a as a result of these social relations. Though that might in itself be a problem too. But the, the, the central problem is the social relations themselves, whether people um, are being uh, treated in a way uh, that is um, that is exploiting them, that is dominating them, that is in, in, in some respect un- undermining their, their, their capacity to live dignified lives. Whether um, they're subject to alienation and exploitation, right? And of course- yeah. Unequal distribution is something which gives rise to exploitative dynamics. It's because some people have much less wealth and power than other people that they get pressed into the wage relationship. Oh, right, right, but right. The experience of exploitation is itself the, the thing to which Marx is really objecting, not necessarily the distribution per se. And I right. think part of the reason that that is how Marx feels about this is that once you decide that equality is what you're going for, because equality is so amorphous, it can be defined in many very different ways. And we've been talking about some of these ways, but we haven't even gotten on to, I think, the most interesting way of, of organizing the debate about conceptions of equality, which is the what I like to call the input-output debate, right? So equality can be a matter of input that everyone, say, gets a vote or gets a say or gets an opportunity to participate in politics or gets to run for office or gets plucked out of the hat when you are choosing people through sortition or whatever your procedure is, you can have a quality of input. Uh, Or you can have a quality of output, right? Output focusing on what you actually get at the end, right? And what you get at the end can be stuff or it can be capabilities, it can be rights, it can be liberties, it can be other kinds of things too. But not only do uh, definitions of equality avoid having to give you welfare by, say, relying on opportunity or something looser or relying on on just taking care of the areas under the purview of luck, not only do they do do that, but equality definitions often run away from output altogether in favor of giving you input equality. Right, right, right. But both opportunities right. and outcomes are outputs. And yeah, uh, often we're, we're not even focusing on either. It's it's a, yeah, it's a flight towards, yeah, as you say. Do you get a vote? Do you get a say? Inputs, and if you yeah. get a vote, if you get a say, then whatever it is that you decide upon as an output, because it came from an egalitarian input procedure, it then is given procedural legitimation and justification irrespective of its substantive output. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And this comes out of a lot of democratic theory. A lot of democratic theory, which is proceduralist, focuses on how the decision is taken and is therefore okay with all kinds of distributive decisions that 
provided that those decisions come out of a procedure which is relevantly procedurally egalitarian. And that mm. becomes a legitimation for very unequal distributive conditions. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think we've been seeing a lot of that recently in the last 40 or 50 years or so. There's been a tendency for conceptions of equality to become more and more interested in procedural input with an assumption oftentimes on the part of the advocates. It's not that everyone who advocates for procedural input doesn't care about output, but a lot of people assume that if you get egalitarianism with respect to input, then that will give you egalitarianism with respect to output, right? And this allows a lot of uh, radicals to be kind of bought off by procedural reforms, which appear to give them a more equal say in the political system, but which in practice will not actually guarantee them the decisions that they're hoping for, right? So you can think about uh, franchise expansion, for instance. In the 19th century, it was thought that if you made fran the franchise voting uh, equal access, if you gave everyone the right to vote, that that would have a substantive consequence. Marx even at one point argues that universal suffrage is the beginning of, or, or even functionally the same as, the rise of the proletarian to possess uh, dominance. Uh, this is earlier in his career before he you know, sees how, how that unfolds. And of course, the thing is that once you get the vote, there are still lots of things that can be done to give particular people more influence over decision making that are consistent with everybody having the same vote. Well, some people own media companies and other people don't. Well, some people dominate universities while other people don't. Some people have access to different kinds of discursive and cultural capital that other people don't have, right? And so then, you know, you can get into this procedural thing where you keep trying to make the procedure more egalitarian, right? But this can be a kind of of whack-a-mole game where because you're not really getting at the fundamental distribution of stuff, the wealth enables people to come up with new ways of influencing the discourse and influencing politics. So you're always a step behind when you're focusing on political procedures. Because if you don't target the actual distribution of wealth and power in the society in any way, then it can always come back in a new way. It can always find a new way of inserting itself into the political process. Mm. Because wealth is, is exchangeable into many different forms of power. Wealth can buy many different kinds of things. So, for instance, yeah. in the 70s, when the, the right was shut out of the university system to a significant degree, it just didn't have very many professors who shared its, its view about the economy. The right responded during the 70s by setting up think tanks in the United States, you know, things like Heritage Foundation. These think tanks are kind of para-universities. They're not real universities, but they do the same work that universities do, which is put out research that... Uh, can be used to legitimate particular kinds of technocratic moves, certain kinds of expertise or claims to expertise, right? And so what happens is, is the, the right-wingers use those think tanks to generate uh, seemingly very expert-oriented policy advice, and then they can use that to penetrate the state institutions and eventually the universities as well, right? So rich people just because they didn't have a foothold in the university system, 
to the degree that they would have liked. That doesn't mean that they can't create a foothold by building some other kind of institution, right? So if you don't like, for instance, your level of influence over what's taught in the public schools, well, you can create private schools and then gradually set up a competitive environment in which the public schools can't compete with the private schools you're setting up. And in that way, you can effectively shape that discourse, even though nominally you may not have any direct influence over the curriculum in the public schools. Hmm. So there's all kinds of games you can play once you have a lot of money to get uh, an unequal say in political decision making. And so I think that very often that those input oriented theories devolve into an ineffective whack-a-mole. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess in fairness to the uh, early writings of Karl Marx in his mid twenties, uh, Marx penned an article uh, on the law of on the law of theft of woods, where he made one of his first forays into um, what might be called political economy, um, and he was writing for. Um, uh, um, writing the newspaper um, about um, the conflicts over um, legislation um, about punishing intruders on you know on forests who were who, who, who were taking wood and the conflict between um, this and the interests of um, the the owners of of, of woodland. And uh, Marx came to the conclusion that uh, law here was playing much less of a role than uh, the power and wealth uh, that could be wielded um, by the state and the um, the the owners of production. Um, and I, I guess this argument that um, that might trumps right uh, and that um might makes right um and that both power and profit make uh make law um yeah could 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 be seen as uh, an argument against um seeing something like equality as uh, as something that has to be about inputs because in in a way that th those outputs uh, insofar as their material can have a lot of can have a lot of power in shaping how things how things happen, whereas those inputs, I mean, ironically, the outputs seem prior to the inputs on that on that on that egalitarian conception. Because if the outputs are about what people materially have, then that has seems to have a lot more relevance for for what happens to the inputs then because the outputs get translated into new inputs like the input inequality is is often a reflection of the output inequality as martin Gillens argues in the book affluence and influence um where he shows how economic inequality translates into into political inequality um now, of course, you know, but then there's the question of well, you know, what is the role of the political itself? Uh, and I guess even then, much more than procedures, you've got the actual power of the state um, as being something that has a role to play. Um, and, and so, domestically, what really matters is uh, you know, how different 
socioeconomic groups um, have con- different levels of control over wealth and power. But internationally, what matters is the distribution of power among states. Um, and, and so often these debates about equality distract from these realities of, of, of wealth and power by making us get um, c- concerned about the particular procedures we're using, when which procedures we're using may actually be a reflection of, of, of the realities of wealth and power. Right. And so often when there's a concession made to the procedures that you want, that concession is being made in part because the procedure that you're pushing on is not important and doesn't actually have the causal power that you might think that it has. Uh, Another interesting example is what's happened with the internet. In the 90s, everybody thought of the internet as this, wow, this big democratizing thing where everybody can be heard and everybody can talk and there's no gatekeepers and you can say whatever you want. And what gradually happens? Well, gradually, people with a lot of money or the ability to pull a lot of money together through pulling together investors develop tools, very effective tools like, say, the Google search engine or the Facebook social network uh, or uh, messaging app, right? These things that just do very basic tools, very basic things that we need. And they're things where we don't want to have a bunch of different ones. We don't want to have to go to, say, five different search engines. We don't want to have to keep track of our friends in five different social media outlets. So if you develop one of these tools and you have a tool that's just more effective than the other tools, well, everyone will flock to that tool. And then, since everyone's flocking to that tool, you can put advertisements in front of them. And since everyone's flocking to that tool because it's the most useful tool, you can raise an ungodly amount of money from those advertisements. And then before long, you have so much money, you can now buy up the rest of the internet and exercise enormous control over what is said on it and how it develops and how it grows. And so you take something which appears to be a kind of free-for-all zone where, wow, we don't have the people who run television or the people who run newspapers telling everybody what to say and deciding what gets published and what doesn't. And you can domesticate that and turn it into another space where you have very, very rich people exercising extraordinary influence over the discourse. And that's because money is so effective, wealth is so effective at finding ways to turn itself into power and finding new ways to turn itself into power. And so if you try to shut off one route, it easily finds another route. And this is the difficulty of doing what Habermas suggests, trying to insulate um, culture and um, um, politics from the economy through through law, which is similar to Rawls' suggestion that we use um, procedure um, to try to get people together and you know manage um, potential disparities of of power. You know, this notion that it's law um, or procedure or particular kind of uh, institutional rules about uh, about political discourse um, or about political decisions that will, will solve the problem. And I guess we see this to get today that it's often easy, um, not just for politicians to adopt different discursive postures um, to try to seem like they're, they're, they're challenging the state of things, um, but also for politicians to try to say, well, look, maybe the problem isn't actually uh, what's happening in people's lives, uh, what's actually going on um, uh, materially, economically for people, but, but instead to say, oh, the problem is uh, 
uh, say in, in, in the US, the, the problem is the filibuster, or in the UK, well, the, the problem is the House of Lords, or the, the problem is some some institutional um, fact about how proce- how procedurally decisions are done, uh, rather than the you know, who holds power in society, uh, you know, which institutions are. Um, leveraging what kinds of power instead it's just the procedures about what goes into the decision um, rather than using the institutions to change uh, the distribution of material power yeah yeah it's very tricky isn't it and it's it's so difficult to stay ahead so if you're trying to do what say habermas suggests and you use the law to protect the culture from the economy it's very difficult to stay ahead because you mentioned things like the House of Lords or the filibuster. These are things that have been around for a very long time. You know, nobody's been able to get rid of the House of Lords and everyone's been perfectly aware of it in its role for a long time. You look at something like the internet. By the time the internet is large enough and has been around long enough that legislators understand it and take it seriously on any level, it is already in the hands of extraordinarily wealthy actors who now have enough resources to frustrate legislation, which might rein it in or, or change it. And that's one of the things about these kinds of new industries or new ways of generating money, generating wealth, and projecting it through society. By the time they get to a point where they are noticeable enough to be concerning to legislators, they are usually so large that they can exercise influence directly over the legislative process. And sometimes what you'll get are kind of compromise solutions. So for instance, in the States, there isn't going to be regulation of of Facebook straightforwardly, but there is a certain pressure on Facebook to self-regulate, right? But that self-regulation will be done in a way which is consistent with Facebook's overall aims, right? And in places where the state tries to regulate Facebook in a way that's not consistent with Facebook's overall aims, Facebook will will leave or will make it extremely difficult for those reforms to go through, as it's doing in Australia, where Australia has tried to make Facebook pay money to media companies. And Facebook has said, well, we just won't have news on Facebook in Australia if they're going to try to make us pay media companies for showing the news. And uh, we will continue to not have news until you change what you're doing. Uh, By the time they've tried to regulate, Facebook can now cause all kinds of trouble for the Australian government uh, in response to that. Yeah. And I think that, so there's the issue with with inputs and with thinking that inputs will get you where you want to go. And then there's the issue with uh, all of the different ways in which you can define output, right? So we, we talked a little bit about that. There's also the question of, are you talking about individuals or groups or what? What are the units? Right? And the problem with all these debates is that because there are so many different positions you can take, you can call yourself an egalitarian and be for almost anything. And this is, I think, the the really difficult thing about some of these liberal terms that play central roles in legitimating liberal states. They are so vague and so easy to redefine that almost anyone can claim to believe in them. And because of this, they can come to mean anything while the society claims that it is maintaining a fealty to traditional, you know, to, to the terms that it was founded under, 
right? So the state can claim that it's interested in equality or it's interested in liberty, while the meanings of equality and liberty change so much as to be unrecognizable. Mm. And so the change in the, in the society and in the way the society legitimates itself is invisibilized by the fact that it uses the same language. Mm. But that language is now tracking entirely different things. Yeah. Right. So, for instance, in the States, it's, it's recently become very, very popular to think about wealth and income disparities in terms of racial demographics. Right. And that's been competing with income percentiles, which focus on individuals. Right. And then, of course, you could also think about it in terms of classes. You could define up the American distribution into different kinds of class cohorts. And you could think of it that way. Or you could do it regionally in terms of U.S. states. Or in terms of types of geographic places, rural versus urban, right? Yeah. Or you yeah. could divide people up into levels of education. Right. Or I, generations. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, and I think the problem in all these cases is in a way the same problem um, that, that was going on in the debate between Marx and the Lasallians about you know, whether it's Dis the distributions that are actually causing the most problems or whether the, the distributions of power are the product of a certain organization of production um, and whether the problem is with um, the, the, the results of the, uh, of, of the system or, or, or whether the problem is with the system itself um, and I guess even when we look at the results of the system, is it really the equality or inequality of uh, of resources and status recognition that is 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 the problem, um, or or is it just something more general about what people, the, the kinds of lives that people are able to live? Because um, I guess yeah. the notion of equality a, yeah. is a it's a bit of a thirst trap for radicals. Equality. Uh, it looks like it's going to get you somewhere, but oftentimes you end up in the same place, but with a new layer of ideology over it, a new layer of what equality means and how this constitutes equality, which further obscures the real problem that you were trying to solve, which is still there that you haven't solved. But what you end up getting out of an attempt to get equality is a new language for why it's okay that you don't have the thing that you were trying to get. Right, I guess it's partly because of the meaning of the word in uh, the word equality, about a correspondence between uh, the qualities or features of two parties in a certain respect, and then the debates become about what that respect is. But sometimes it would be more helpful to start with with those respects, you know, ab totally abstracted from whatever what what kind of equality uh we're aiming at um you know if it if we're talking about equality of resources and or, or or equality of status then maybe we should start with thinking about resources and status themselves <laughs> rather than approaching it through conceptions of uh, equality because equality is ultimately a, a somewhat mathematical uh concept um it, it, you know it, i mean the sense in which aristotle discusses the term equality 
is in two senses, numerical equality and proportional uh, equality, which is like a quality of ratios. Um, so something maybe equal to something else in, in having the same, the same ratio, uh, or say a two to one ratio, um, uh, whereas numerical equality, um, equality of numbers or quantities is more or less what, what it says on the tin. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I can't think of many political movements that are defending um, proportional egalitarianism saying, well, what we want is, is the same ratio of, um, uh, we want the, the same, uh, ratio of um uh wealth in one part of society as in another we want i guess proportional egalitarianism might be saying well if one if if the um if the top one uh, percent of the wealth distribution have this amount of wealth in this country then they should have this amount of wealth in every society and that would be proportional equality <laughs> well, or, or yeah the <laughs> argument that ceos should make eight times more than their employees not hundreds of times more. oh yes yeah, yeah right right there is that i i, I forgot that kind of argument i, I is forgot out there. people do use proport people do use proportion so I, I thought that everybody just uses numerical equality from aristotle but they also use proportional equality but both they do. yeah the problem of these framings of equality in Aristotle is that I mean, they're not that useful and he doesn't find uses for them that, that, that are you know, overwhelmingly philosophically or politically impressive. And I think the same is the case with all of the uses of the concept of equality since Aristotle, that, that they, these terms are ultimately mathematical concepts and uh, mathematical concepts are all well and good in politics and it's worthwhile thinking about things quantitatively but it's also worth thinking about the qualities that that, that we're considering and the risk with just talking about quantities talking about abstract relations of equality is that we're not actually talking about the qualities concerned that the resources the the status recognition the you know, the actual qualities concerned the actual features um, are worth considering um, and ultimately i think we need to do both we need to both consider uh, equalities and inequalities or various qualities um, or, 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 um, or quantities, but also look at these things themselves and look at both look at both a quantitative analysis of, of society um, but also a qualitative analysis that looks at the qualities themselves. And I think that's what we're really losing. Well, it becomes very instrumental and we lose the people, intrinsic People who try to do what you're describing, there are people who try to do it and they make arguments in terms of needs or in terms of sufficiency yeah, or yeah. in terms of capability right. or in terms of certain positive liberties. They make those kinds of arguments. Uh, I, I do want to briefly mention that, of course, one of the consequences of the more mathematical approach to this is what's called the leveling down objection. Mm -hmm. The leveling down mm. objection, which argues, well, if equality is in and of itself valuable, then let's say you had a society where some, uh, most people have two good eyes and uh, some other people are blind, right? If you can't restore sight to the blind, you could nonetheless achieve equality by blinding everybody who can see, right? Mm. Now, and this is an example of the leveling down objection. It's taking the people who are better off and making them worse off without providing any straightforward benefit to those who are badly off, right? And this is an argument that often gets leveled at socialist proposals where right-wingers will say, 
ah, but then you'll just make everybody poor and miserable, right? You'll just level down, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the issue with the leveling down objection is because it treats equality as in and of itself valuable uh, and as, as the reason that people are arguing for equality. Uh, the argument goes through relatively successfully. There are some people who try to argue back against it, but I, I don't think those arguments work especially well. I mean, an immediate problem, though, is that if equality is valued intrinsically and the leveling down objection is saying that, oh, look, well, the consequence of, of, of an egalitarian conception is that we would uh, make, um, we would make uh, some people less well off than they would otherwise be, and perhaps all people uh, less well off than they would otherwise be in order to get to equality, then th- that means that we get a society that, that where the, the outcome isn't isn't nice. Um, but that's I, I feel that this is confusing um, instrumental with intrinsic value because if equality is intrinsically valuable, then no argument as to the instrumental consequences of it would disprove the notion that equality is intrinsically valuable. It may be that equality is intrinsically valuable, but it's also well, and, valuable. And this is to, what people yeah. try to argue. They yeah, try to yeah. argue that it, because equality is intrinsically valuable, it's valuable irrespective of, of its effects. And while it might be overridden by large-scale negative effects on people's well-being, it would still have value. It would just be value that was being overridden by those negatives. And right. people try to make that argument. But I think a more straightforward response is to go, well, yeah, Equality is not the point. It's the things that you are trying to get people that they need or that they would greatly benefit from that you're using equality to tactically try to get them. Right. Equality of resources, welfare, concern, status, respect. It's whatever it is, whatever it is that you think is important. When you're arguing for equality, what you're really saying is that some people don't have enough of something that's quite important or that some people are being denied something that they, they really need. And that it's not right to not ensure they have. Right, right. right. And that's really an argument about the importance of the thing that you have made the currency. Mm. And saying that it's not okay to have a society where some people are left without that thing because those people are being denied something that's very fundamentally important. Yeah. uh, yeah. So this, this leads to a lot of sufficientarian arguments that say that you would achieve justice by getting everyone a sufficient level of something. But of course, the argument is made back that as the level of prosperity in a society or the level of, of uh, sophistication increases, what we will take to be sufficient will change. And so therefore, what we might take to be sufficient in the context of uh, pre-industrial society, we would not take to be sufficient today, where we might say that people should also be entitled to things like the internet or to uh, electrical power or something like that. Right, right. And that's the problem with the leveling down objection, because it forgets that scarcity while it is something that does persist in many respects in a kind of semi-permanent way, is something that can be at least partially overcome through technology. And that scarcity of resources, which is the precondition for the need to level level down, um, might um, might be overcome in various ways and it has been overcome well, in various ways. Well, I don't ways. think that affects the leveling down argument as an argument because the leveling down argument is more of a thought experiment. Even if it is the case that we can achieve equality without leveling down, the argument that is being made with the leveling down objection is that specifically because you could make the leveling down objection to an attempt to level down, this suggests that equality in and of itself is being overrated. 
Right, but it it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense in either context because as a thought experiment, it doesn't make sense because it's confusing intrinsic with instrumental value. It's saying that uh, that we shouldn't uh, value equality intrinsically because look at it, look at its instrumental consequences. Um, but it doesn't. Well, I, it, I wouldn't yeah. say that it's saying we shouldn't value equality intrinsically. It's saying that we. Equality certainly cannot be the monistic value. It cannot be the only value, or by far, obviously, the most important, right. most dominant. Which is value. such a straw man argument because there's no there's no single philosopher or you know serious political thinker who or, or, or political movement that has said, "Oh, it's all about equality, and that's the only oh, thing." Oh yes, matters. there are. Yes, there are. Utopian socialists tend to make precisely this oh, kind that, of move. Oh, that's that's yes, yes, I, I see. Right. Yes. Yeah. The French revolutionaries, liberté, égalité, fraternité. Equality has been put at the center of liberal legitimation narratives for several hundred years now. But no, but not as the as the thing which over and the leveling down argument well, as, is as yeah. right up there with liberty, right? And so the, okay. the difficulty that left wingers run into is that when they are making their argument mainly through equality, there are problems with equality as a as a liberating term. Because equality gives rise to this kind of mathematical argument, which you can cause a lot of trouble for with something like the leveling down objection, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure the leveling down objection is that persuasive. Because the firstly, it doesn't dis, it doesn't overcome the notion that equality is intrinsically valuable. Because it's it's saying that look at how we would have to level down in this thought experiment, and wouldn't that be bad? But that that's an instrumental consequence of equality that doesn't disprove whether it's intrinsically valuable. No, it's not yeah. about whether it proves it or disproves it. It's checking its value. It's saying that even if you think equality has intrinsic value, you don't think it has so much intrinsic value that it can dominate in this argument. Okay. Um... And this is a problem for theorists who have tried to really heavily anchor their programs around equality as a concept. Because if you're saying equality is really important, well, it seems easy to come up with leveling down cases where equality could not be the adjudicating value, at least not equality as conventionally understood by these theorists. Mm. That's why the leveling down objection has so much purchase in the discussion of equality. That's why it's so common is because it causes so much trouble for so many proposals which have tended to be anchored around equality and to understand it in this kind of mathematical way. So I think that the, the lesson to take from the leveling down objection is that if you go in and, and try to do your emancipatory project with equality, you're immediately going to run into the problem that equality can be defined in lots of ways. And then secondarily, the problem that equality can be defined in ways such that you very quickly start to get backed into a corner. Right. Mm. And what the leveling down objection does is it backs a particular way of understanding equality into a corner. You know, equality as this big adjudicating value that's right up there with liberalism, uh, with, with, uh, with liberty, excuse me, that competes with liberty, that is potentially more important than liberty. And this is how the argument gets pitched by egalitarians. Right. So how do you, how do you respond to that? Well, one way to respond to it is to go, what is it that you're really trying to get people when you argue for equality or for egalitarianism? What is it that you really want them to have? What is it that you really want them to be protected from? Right. I mean, I mean of course, the, the question is them raised, well, is everybody an egalitarian just in different respects? So people want equality of different things. Um, 
I mean, but uh, if everyone's an egalitarian, then no one is. Right, then it's I, I not agree. that important but, a concept. I mean, do you think everybody is an egalitarian? Uh, do some people reject all forms of equality, or, or, or do you think everybody is an egalitarian in, in certain respects, in certain politically relevant respects? Well, I think even the very, very hierarchical folks who, you know, as Aristotle says, that there's nothing for Aristotle. There's nothing worse than to treat unequal things as equal. Okay. Right? Because oftentimes in ancient conceptions where you have different, you know, you have, nat in Aristotle's case, natural masters and natural slaves, where you have different types of people who are accorded different kinds of positions in society based on their type, right? There's a fundamental natural inequality there. Right, right. But even this, there's there's an implicit understanding of equality that you could pull out of this, because for someone like Aristotle, equality is to treat things in accordance with their rank. You're treating people equally if you treat them in accordance with their rank and not skewing that on the basis of something else, mm. right? In accordance with the kind of thing that they are. Right, right, right. But he also has these notions of numerical and proportional equality, which could be applied, which could be applied to the contemporary context through, you know, notions of, um, you know, well, distribution yes, but in, in ways which would not be not be Aristotle's ways of applying those terms. No, no, yeah, no, because for Aristotle, the main thing is to not treat unequal things as equal, and and as in insofar as you do that, you are in a sense uh, achieving a larger kind of equality because you're treating things. Uh, equally on the basis of their status in his taxonomy. Uh, the, the, the irony with, with Aristotle, of course, is that despite his uh, attempt to make an argument justifying slavery, he also made an argument about how slavery could be theoretically overcome through, uh, through the automation of technology. If instruments could work for themselves, then Aristotle says that there would be uh, masters would not need servants, nor servants masters, and the master-slave distinction would be abolished, um, which is... Well, he doesn't say it would be abolished. He says that there would be no need for slaves, but he doesn't say uh, that therefore we, that that's something that is achievable that we ought to try to get. He doesn't, he's not that explicit. No, no, though he, he does write in a way that suggests that he's not against the idea as such. He doesn't suggest that he's for it either. No, that, because that's for Aristotle, true. there are natural masters and natural slaves, and that natural distinction is true regardless of our technology. Aristotle is really very hierarchical, but but he it's, also makes this it's argument pretty hard to get around that. But he also makes this argument saying that that the necessity of the master-slave distinction would be overcome with sufficient technology, which suggests that there is that that, that it's not a natural thing. His argument about the automation and uh, and I don't, I don't think there's an a, there's a line that actually says that it would be unnecessary. That I don't think that that is actually what the text says. I think that that's something you've kind of read into that line. I don't think that's in the text. Yeah. Um, well, he, he says okay. So so this is what he says in 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 um, book one of the politics. So um, he says that. Um, for if every instrument could accomplish its own work, obeying or anticipating the will of others, like the statues of Diodorus or the tripods of Hephaestus, which says the poet of their own accord entered the assembly of the gods, if in like manner the shuttle, 
would weave and the plectrum touch the lyre. Chief workmen would not want servants, nor masters slaves. Right, but that's not how nature is for Aristotle. The point is that because nature isn't like that, then of course we do want those things, and it's fortunate that we uh, want them because that's what we have. Nature has given us, in his view, both natural masters and natural that, slaves. That implies that nature rules out the possibility of every instrument accomplishing its own work. Well, the lyre would never pluck itself. What, what you're imagining with technology is not a lyre that plucks itself. You're imagining a whole different instrument, which works of its own accord and happens to sound like a lyre. Well, there is no such thing as a lyre which plucks itself. No, uh, well, not a lyre as understood by Aristotle, because a lyre is something which actually exists in the Greek world and which definitely does not pluck itself. Yes, yes, I think that's if that that's that's probably true. When, when he's uh, citing um, Homer in, in that passage. He's these are fantastical things that he's talking about, things that are in mythology, things that are not of this world. He's not suggesting that technology will develop in such a way that we will actually have these things. He's suggesting that if we lived in a fantasy world where all of these things worked of their own accord, then we wouldn't need slaves. But we don't live in a fantasy world like that for Aristotle. Aristotle doesn't have that level of of anticipation with respect to technology. Yeah, I, I think... I think that is true. Um, it would be nice if you did. It would be impressive. It would be a cool thought. But right. I don't think it's there. But 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 if even if Aristotle didn't um, believe it were possible, um, I think in the modern world we can see how you know automation is a thing that happens, and technology as it develops over time does substitute for. Uh, for labor, you, you, there, there is such a thing as labor-saving technology. Um, yeah, yeah, but that's that's a modern idea. That's your idea. That's Marx's idea. That's other people's ideas. Um, dare I say that there, there was labor-saving technology in Aristotle's day, but but he doesn't make reference to that technology in that passage. Hmm. Mm. But I, I agree that it's an interesting thought. I just don't think it's it's what Aristotle is saying there. Uh, and so important to clarify, I don't think that's what Aristotle himself is saying. Uh, but it's an interesting thought about equality and about how technology as it develops potentially shifts uh, hierarchy and, and equality and how different kinds of technology can encourage or discourage different kinds of, of hierarchy or equality in different respects in different areas of life. Right? Mm. So for instance, uh, one of the arguments that is often made is that the development of handheld weapons made it much more difficult for very big, burly people to dominate the people around them. Because the people around them could, through handheld weapons, very easily come together and, and hack that person apart. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so the emergence of handheld weapons had a leveling effect on power structures in Historical, uh, very, very, very ancient. Yeah, pre prehistory. Yeah, yeah, yeah prehistorical societies. Yeah, right? yeah. And conversely, it's often argued that development of agriculture encouraged hierarchy because agriculture gives rise to uh, 
the accumulation of land by particular landholders yeah. over time. If you have a set of land that you distribute equally, you can very quickly imagine how that land will gradually over the generations become distributed in a very unequal way, yeah. right? You can imagine if you have two landholders who live next to each other and each one has four kids, or say one of them has no kids, but the other has four, or one of them has only one kid while the other has four. Well, the one who has four, that land is going to be distributed among those kids. And if they just keep having more kids, the land will get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it's no longer viable as, as a farm plot, at which point the kids will have to sell the land, right? Whereas, say, in the other family, all of the land is kept in the hands of one firstborn heir, right? In that family, uh, there will be plenty of, of, of money raised off the land. And when the smaller landholders in the neighboring plot sell, the person who has kept all of the land together will be in great position to potentially buy that land and further enlarge their plot, right? Mm. But this is accomplished because in the family where the land ownership is concentrated, uh, either the land does not get distributed to multiple children, or you don't have multiple children in the first instance, or you have superior management of the land. Something has to happen to enable the plot to stay together for that family, but not together for the others, right? And so once the, a plot of land begins to break up into smaller and smaller parts, it very quickly becomes vulnerable to being subsumed by another player. And so when you do that over and over across generations, across centuries in a society, you end up with extraordinarily unequal land distribution. Mm. Right Now, what's consequential about that? Is it just the fact that the land distribution is unequal? Well, no. What's consequential about it is that in ancient societies, possessing land is necessary so that you have resources from the land, and therefore you can spend a lot of your time doing other things apart from trying to get resources, right? Like engaging in politics or warfare or education, right? You need leisure time that you get from holding the land. So the landed aristocrat becomes an aristocrat, develops the aristocratic culture and habits and so on, uh, because the aristocrat owns a plot of land and then uses the landless population to work that land so that the landless, uh, the, the, so that the landed aristocrat can go and do all kinds of other things with the time, right? And then that enables the landed aristocrat to have control over politics and control over religion and control over all of the other institutions of life and to use all of those institutions to further protect the landed aristocrat's position and to further increase the landed aristocrat's dominion over those landless people over time. Right? But also along the way to exercise all of the freedom, freedoms and, and liberties that go with being free from having to spend all of the time gathering what is necessary to survive, right? Therefore, free to make art, free to do politics, free to engage in all sorts of acculturated activities, free to read books, write books, make paintings, make art, all of that, mm. right? So what, what really bothers us about there being some people who have these big plots of land and other people who are landless and are forced to work the plots of land is that some people are able to do all of these other things, to engage in all of these other pursuits, and other people are completely denied that opportunity because they have, are given no choice but to toil on someone else's land 
for their own survival, right? So what's bothering us there is not just the pure inequality of that, but the idea that if you know somebody can do that, wouldn't it be great if other people could also do that? Right, right. And I think it is both. It, it, I think that there is a risk of you know, going between the extremes of saying, well, the problem is equality or inequality versus saying, well, the issue is just about the particular terms we're using, the particular qualities we're referring to, capacity or opportunity or respect or concern. Um, when perhaps we need to, a, a balance between um, thinking about uh, the um, the qualities that we're interested in, thinking about what kinds of um, capacities or welfare or resources matter to people um, and matter to uh, living a good life, um, but also thinking about uh, how these uh, capacities or resources are distributed and uh, having you know both that uh, qualitative um, uh, perspective and a quantitative one um, might be the way of uh, perhaps going about resolving this problem of uh, some people just focusing on the mathematical um, concept of uh, equality and the, the numbers game of, of who has um, the largest you know, sh share of votes or the largest share of wealth distribution. Um, uh, you know, Versus, on the other hand, focusing on uh, the particular qualities of respect and concern and wealth and welfare, uh, and perhaps we need to to do both. Well, uh, another way of thinking about it, of course, comes from the Republican tradition, small R Republican, uh, which focuses on characterizing the relationships, right? Right. So right. one way of thinking about it is is to say that certain kinds of relationships constitute domination. Right, where say exploitation would be one particular form of domination, and perhaps there are some others too, like being subject to arbitrary power. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that being under domination prevents you from necessarily doing lots of different things. Uh, yeah, and that, and that's... that therefore being under domination is itself the core problem. Yeah, and it's been recently argued um that domination um uh, is uh, similar to the marxian account of exploitation um which i think is an argument that has has something um, to it because the link between republicanism and marxist theory is the attention to social uh, relations uh, with the difference being that marx is paying attention especially to social relations that are economic in character, whereas Republicans are paying attention, small R Republicans are paying attention to social relations that are political in character. But both mm. are concerned with social relations. And so that that might be the the, the, the link of um, uh, not just looking at uh, taking... I guess another problem with the view of equality is it does have a slightly individualistic view of society as separated into separate persons and separate entities rather than as linked into a whole. And, uh, and maybe, yeah, may, maybe republicanism and Marxist theory serve as an alternative to that individualistic framing that underpins conceptions of equality. Of course, the thing that I wonder is, is non-domination or domination as the view, uh, is that really 
better than equality at protecting you from this possibility of endless, endless reinterpretation to suit the needs of existing elites. Because I can also imagine conceptions of domination, which are narrow enough that they would exclude exploitation. Right, right. But, but, and, but that's why, um, that, that's why, um, I mean, recently, um, um, Bruno Leopold has argued um, um, that uh, that there is a um, he, he 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 wrote a thesis called "Citizen Marx: The Relationship Between Karl Marx and Republicanism." Uh, Leopold's argument is that Marx is applying to the economic sphere um, what Republicanism had tried to achieve in in the political sphere, um, which is looking right. at social but that relations. emphasis on spheres, right? So to say an economic and a political sphere, doesn't that sound a little bit like input and output equality, where the political sphere is input and the economic sphere is output? And couldn't we get caught in the same kind of conundrum where when we try to make non-domination about the economic sphere, in response, others try to make it about the political sphere well, in much the same way that when we try right. to talk about equality of output, people start talking about equality of input right. and suggest that there's going to be some kind of linear connection between one and the other that isn't necessarily there. Right, right. Oh, okay. I, I see what you mean. Well, <laughs> And so Marx, in trying to escape the, va the vagaries of, of the equality debate, may not really have gotten himself out of that because the language of domination is not quite as straightforward as even, say, exploitation. Exploitation more cuts to the chase. Yeah. I mean, could we do both? Is it possible to have both? Both the Republican conception and the argument against exploitation? Uh, and also some of the um, best of the egalitarian conceptions, um, perhaps... Uh, such as Dworkin's concept of equality of um, uh, equality of um, resources and equality of concern, which which itself tries to tie together um, economic and political concepts of equality. Well, that's the thing, right? So we say do both. The trouble is, as we've observed with equality over the years, what tends to happen is that the way the term is understood shifts to benefit whoever is in position in society to, to shape that discourse. Right, so right. So equality tends to be understood in a way which favors the people who have power and influence over the discourse. Right. So it's like a game of hot potatoes. So the term of equality is always, is always shifted over time, but it's never allowed to take a, take a, a broader view because it's always imprisoned within certain, within certain limits. And equality itself right. and, is, and is it, a limited will, term. Yeah. And what will happen is that radicals will constantly try to reinvent it in such a way that it is emancipatory, and then it will constantly be bent back into reinscribing and re-legitimating the system. Now, we can imagine that that might not happen with domination in part because the Republicans are not dominant in this discourse, right? Mm. So we can go, well, maybe the Republicans could do both. But part of the reason why we're imagining that is because right now, Republicanism is not dominant. Liberalism is dominant, and Republicanism is trying to challenge and revise that, right? But some Republicans are liberals. Mm. And conceivably, Republicanism could also have a liberal variety, which adopts many of the same moves which liberal egalitarians adopt. Mm. And so we may not really be able to get out 
by this move. As interesting as it is, and I think that part of the reason why it's interesting is that republicanism in general draws on a citizenship discourse, which is more particularist to particular states, and which has a kind of unifying effect, because if you identify with being a citizen of a particular republic, then that's something you can share, even if you come from otherwise very different backgrounds, very different kinds of socialization, Mm. right? Whereas in liberalism, there's been this tension between thinking about equality in terms of individuals and thinking about equality in terms of groups. Right. Right? Whether racial, gender, uh, ethnic, whatever it might be. And republicanism, by talking about equality among citizens, where a citizen is a kind of collective marker, but one which everybody has. Yeah. There's an appeal to that in in contradistinction to talking about individuals, which feels uh, too atomizing and too anti-communitarian. Right, right. And talking about groups, which feels overly stereotyping, overly essentialist and reductive. Yeah, instead citizenship and equality of the status of citizens is one. And I think that's really the most appealing contribution that the Republicans have made is this idea of citizenship as an equal status, which everyone has, and which therefore could tie everybody to the same set of rights in a more straightforward way. Yeah, yeah. But of course, th- whereas yeah. when we talk about equality in virtue of, say, being a human being, you know, like human rights, well, in practice around the world, even though everybody's a human being and theoretically everybody is protected by the UN Declaration of Human Rights, in point of fact, that is not the case. In point of fact, people are not all protected by those human rights. And there's immense global injustice on the basis of disparities in power among states. And so the human rights discourse relies on telling people that they have rights that they blatantly do not have in practice. Right. And right. so it, it comes across as rather utopian and detached, whereas the citizenship language, because it is connected to something that is already more real, the fact that some people possess citizenship, uh, is more plausibly the basis for making realistic extensions of existing rights, which already come from states rather than re- from a global institution, since there is no right. global institution. And the sense in which republicanism and Marxism have something in common, is that both the emphasis on citizenship in republicanism and the emphasis on uh, class relations of exploitation in Marx um, basically have their roots in ancient concepts of political thought, um, in, in arguments about you know how a lot of this boils down to this uh, dialectic between the part and the whole, the class and the state, um, and how uh, a, a a flourishing society is one where the, where the state, where the whole, um, uh, is su- successfully balanced the different classes within it um, and, and achieved this kind of platonic. Uh, Unity, but whether or not that is the aim, the emphasis in both Plato and Aristotle is on states and classes as the kind of the dynamo of history. Classes competing within each other, uh, among uh, classes competing among each other within the state, um, and also states competing among each other. That's less of a concern for Plato and Aristotle, but that they're very aware of that. 
living in ancient Greece with lots of different city-states competing with each other. Um, well, their threat to a significant degree is that a city's ability to compete with other cities will stem in part from its ability to manage itself. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and managing itself in their context means managing classes. Right. I mean, an interesting thing is that they're not, despite, despite the fact that there is that international orientation of their thought, they're not um, applying the same analytical rigor to uh, interstate relations as they are to relations among classes within the state. Um, but they're certainly aware it's there. And I, I guess uh, it's quite helpful to combine um, um, yeah, the emphasis on exploitation with the emphasis on citizenship, because in combining these languages of class and citizenship, we're going beyond the the modern bifurcation of these things and trying to look at how these things fit together. And I think if there's one theme that emerges from these discussions of equality, it's it's this: it's that the problem in general with um, concepts like equality is not you know the problems of the term equality per se. It, it makes sense as a term. But the ways in which it is used to try to separate things from each other and to try to silo off uh, uh, some values from other values rather than looking to the whole, looking to the totality. And I think- Isn't it interesting, Edmund, how equality is often used discursively to create hierarchies of values? Right, that's a good point. Right, so equality is often used to say, well, this is the currency of justice that's important, or this is the unit that we need to be comparing it. We need to compare the individual, or we need to compare the group, or we need to compare the class, we need to compare states. Right, We have to compare this currency or that one. All of that is is emphasizing differentiation and separation and saying that this thing is more important than these other things. And so it is eroding an equality among the actual values themselves. Right, right. Yeah, and perhaps we need just that. We need a meta-equality, and we need to be egalitarians about equality itself and have equal <laughs> yeah, concept, equal equalities. There, there is the risk that you push the problem back, right? Oh, oh sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, there is and that it, risk. The, a synthesis is not necessarily equal. A synthesis takes... The good elements of of both parts. It does, yeah. Uh, and leaves the bad elements. Now, are you getting the same amount of good parts from each element, and leaving the same amount of bad parts from each? Uh, that's not obvious. You might be leaning. A synthesis might lean more toward one of its constituent parts than the other. Yeah, it, it might. Yeah, yeah. I, it would be a balance, but it, it would have a priority too, and it would be a balanced priority. Uh, as a result yeah 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 i think one 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 further synthesis uh i was thinking about as we were chatting um was was how the concept of equality being uh 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 a, a concept that is about the relation of certain qualities to other qualities. Um, I think I said it was a quantitative uh, relation. It's not necessarily a a quantitative relation. It can be framed as that, Um, uh, especially if it's a relation between more than two two people or objects or 
uh, entities, uh, then that correspondence gets cashed out in quantitative terms. Um, and I think what one problem is when people focus on one aspect of this definition, so they they get they get really get focused on the quantitative distribution of certain qualities. Uh, or they focus on the qualities themselves, um, and so focus on the question, a quality of what? Uh, and that's the qualitative question. And then the quantitative question is, well, how equal? So a quality of what? About quality. How equal? You know, qu quantity. Um, yeah, and that how equal question encompasses things like uh, utilitarianism, strict egalitarianism, Prioritarianism, which gives priority to the worst off, sufficientarianism, which pursues a particular level. These are kinds of different ideas concerning how to distribute the thing once you've decided what the thing is among the units once you've decided what those units are. Yes, yes, and then, and then there's also so so as well as the. Um... Yeah, and that people tend to focus on those two domains, either on a quality of what, which is the question of the quality of a quality, uh, and how equal the question of, of the quantity of a quality. But what's... Or, or, it's really three domains, right? Because we've got the units. What are we comparing? We've got the currencies. What is it that they need or, or want? And then there's the question of how strict to be how strictly egalitarian are we being yeah, what is yes. the distributive paradigm really three questions there well yeah yes i was just yes getting onto that 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 third category cuz what i'm okay so what i'm thinking here about um the about uh uh kant's distinction in the critique of pure reason a, a book i've been wondering whether i can crowbar it in, in, into the podcast and and so this is i feel this is my opportunity and in um in the critique of pure reason, Kant distinguishes between um, um, form, broad, uh, uh, um, uh, kind of um, uh, categories of, of, of thought, uh, categories of quantity, of quality, of relation, and of modality. And so I think the concept of equality uh, can be seen through these different frames. And I think people always focus on the, on the questions of quantity and quality, a quality of, a quality of um, what, which is the quality question, and how equal, which is the quantity question. But also, as Benjamin was just, just saying about the um, the paradigm of equality that we're considering, and I think that 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 can refer to the the, the relation of equality. So, so in terms of the definition, you've got that 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 relation, that correspondence um, between um, the the qualities of 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 one party and another. Um, but what does that what does that relation consist in? Um, you know, what are we actually? How are we doing that comparison? Um, is is something that I hadn't, I think, hasn't ha hasn't necessarily been considered uh, 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 as much. Um, so, for instance, you know, when we're comparing uh, the uh, the um, equality of status of, uh, say, two individuals or two citizens. And you know, not it's not just relevant, um, you know, what status means, but how we're actually 
comparing and on what basis we're doing that comparison? Uh, are we just putting them kind of uh, side by side and asking whether they share the same the same characteristics? Is it just that com- kind of comparative relation, or are we also looking at the effects of one of one party or, 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 or on the other? Uh, and is the concept of equality something that has has causal weight too, um, where, where we're looking at the relationship itself. I mean, I guess that we were talking earlier about uh, about comparing equality with um, relational accounts uh, of social interaction, um, and um, and and I guess you know it could still be framed in the language of equality, but people still like to focus when they bring up the word equality on just the quality and quantity um, aspects of things not and not the relational aspects of things. And the question of modality, the, the, the fourth uh, of uh, Kant's uh, kind of uh, c- categories of thought um, is also siloed quite a lot and, and ignored. Um, the question of um, what's possible um, what's necessary, what's contingent, uh, uh, is quite often obscured. Um, because, for instance, you know, in the, th- the questions about equality are often done through thought experiments. And this is just assumed to be the right way of doing things. Um, whereas other people like to focus just on what is the case, not on what could be the case in theory, but on in actual practice, what has the distribution of wealth looked like? But if we actually took all of these things into account, and if we tried to consider both what could be the case, what has been the case historically, and is on that basis what is likely to be the case in the future, I think we get a far more full conception of um, both equality and other terms And if we didn't. And it, I, I guess if equality has so far been used to separate ways of thinking about politics out, I think that the way to respond to this uh, uh, this division um, wrought by uh, wrought in the name of equality uh, would be to try to bring these things together again and to bring questions of political concepts of quality, quantity, and relation and modality together, and to look at look at all these things together in order to get a full uh, a full conception. Um, of both equality and other and other concepts, rather than just a partial conception. That's the thing, right? Equality it suggests that different things are somehow the same, right? So it takes as a premise that there are different things, and that those things are equal; that they are somehow, nonetheless, in some relevant respect, the same, right? So it presupposes both difference and sameness at once, and that makes it difficult to harmonize equality with more antique notions of wholeness, where wholeness is not contrasted with anything else. Hmm. Or, or does it, I mean, th- that's funny though, because the way you put it makes it sound like it would be well, well fit for that kind of holism that acknowledges both variety and unity at the same time. Well, but that's the thing. Once you have a duality between variety and unity, then the unity is bounded by the duality with variety. 
Right, but we, we but we live in a world which isn't perfectly united, and we live in a in a universe which isn't perfectly united. So surely there will be variety, so long as we, the basic conditions of not just human nature but nature at large um, hold. Well, yeah, but that, that's that's really a, a different a different point. Okay. Okay. I just I just mean that intellectually. Equality develops out of a period of a heavy liberal emphasis on individualism. And oftentimes equality is mooted as a way of fighting back against that individualism, mm. uh, especially in accounts which contrast it heavily with a more individualistic liberty in liberal ideas. Mm. And I, I, I'm just pointing out that equality is not so conflicting with individualism as as that because equality proceeds from breaking things into multiple different units which you then compare right well the thing is that i mean it's interesting though cuz um cuz going back to that Stanford uh, in encyclopedia article that the concept of equality of uh, the correspondence uh, uh among the qualities um of Two entities, or two two or more entities, um, it, it, a correspondence in certain in a certain respect. It is contrasted with identity and similarity, um, uh, and I guess also non-identity too. So there being no correspondence, that's uh, non-identity. There being a full correspondence among all the qualities um, of all the relevant entities. That's identity, where. In effect, there's no distinction between the entities in the end, um, because um, um, because following Leibniz's uh, law of the identity of indiscernibles and the uh, uh, the indiscernibility of identity, that if you can't if you can't distinguish between the qualities of two two parties and they're they're identical, you can't distinguish between the entities if you can't really distinguish between their qualities. I mean that. That argument itself has been disputed, including as it happens by well, Kant. But you see the still. difference between this whole kind of worldview and an emergentist metaphysic, where you see the whole universe as an unfolding process rather than a set of different discrete right, things. Right. And I guess Leibniz um, has this uh, monodology, this philosophy of the universe as uh, broken into uh, harmonious but still separate monads. Uh, Little bits, yeah, right. Yeah. So, and, yeah, and this yeah, is the yeah. the tendency with you know, modern liberalism is to break things into little bits, and then when it's collective rather than really holistic, right? So when you when you decide that you want to bring things back together, you're collective. You're saying I have a collection of little bits, and here's how those little bits will interrelate. But it's still it's not treating larger wholes as having ontological being. It's treating them as just collections of little bits, so it's still right. retaining that micro foundational element to it. Right, right. And that's the thing about equality; it still has that micro foundational element to it, because equality is is bringing about equality among a bunch of little bits. Yeah, yeah. And still, yeah. what you have is a bunch of little bits. Yeah, equality presupposes individuality, presupposes separateness. Yeah, right. And that's why it it often people who are bothered by the extent to which liberalism has become individualistic, I think going to equality to try to get out of that, it doesn't really do it for you. 
Mm. Uh, At least it doesn't do it alone. And I think I think there is an argument that under condition because the the fact is that I guess whether we like it or not, the universe is characterized by a degree of you know, division. Uh, and the universe is not well, apparent perfectly... division. Apparent division. Right, right. But I mean, it's like the, the prisoners in Plato's cave that the philosophers the philosopher can say to the prisoners in Plato's cave that you know all the division and all the shadows aren't real, but it takes some time to wake up to the unreality of division and to the reality of the unity which lies beyond. And I think in the meantime, it can be helpful to have certain rules of how to manage division. And so ideally, we just transcend the division like that, but that's not quite possible. Sometimes well, I'm, I'm not suggesting managed. that we can just transcend division, right, but right. also certain kinds of concepts when we employ them to try to get past individualism. And I think oftentimes equality is employed by people trying to get past individualism to a bit, yeah. uh, or at least to check it or to mo- modulate it. So th- these concepts can trap us if they are not as emancipatory as we think they are. Yeah. And they can lead us to do things which reify and reinscribe our starting position and make it harder for us to see the problems in our initial starting position. And I think that's really the the challenge with a lot of these terms that are kind of mooted to us as terms that we should use to push for change or reform or to make the world a better place. A lot of these terms, when you finish using them, what you will have is the same situation, but described in a set of terms, which makes it sound like a better situation than it was. And so what you will have is not really a better situation, but a situation about which we feel better. And since we feel better about it, we are in a weaker epistemic position for challenging it and revising it going forward. A lot of the time when we try to change things, we end up making it harder for the next generation of people to see the problem instead of really improving the situation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, that's a danger with equality that I really want to point to. And and the reason I, I feel compelled to point this out is I, during my thesis, I, I worked on equality and its relationship to legitimacy. And what what struck me as I was working on this thesis is how when I started, I thought of equality as this very uh, you know, crucial thing. Well, equality is the thing that's gone wrong. There's been this rise in inequality over the last 50 years, and that's the central thing that's driving the trouble. And and I, I think that there are a lot of things that you can describe under the term equality that are the problem. I still think that's the case. Uh, you know, inequality is a way of describing the problem. The issue with inequality is that it is also a way of describing palliative solutions to the problem. You can frame so many things as bringing about equality that when someone raises the charge of this is unequal or this is this is a, a pernicious kind of inequality, you can then offer something which you call by the name of equality, but which doesn't actually administer to the thing that they're talking about. And you can, if you have sufficient discursive influence and and sufficient power in society, propagate that understanding of equality, outcompete the original critical conception, and thereby create a, a generation which understands equality in a way which obscures the, say, relationships of exploitation or domination which continue. Yeah. I, yeah, and I think linking to that, um, I want to make a further philosophical point about. I'm going to again refer back to the 
the article by uh, Stefan Gossipath in the Stanford Encyclopedia about um, equality, uh, wh- where equality is defined as the correspondence um, between the uh, qualities of, of two entities um, in, in a certain respect, uh, where the correspondence holds in a certain respect. And uh, I've been asking questions about, you know, that that respect we've been considering, you know, a quality of what um, and questions of how equal. But I, I want to dig a bit deeper uh, into that question of, of the relation. Uh, and we've been discussing how the relation kind of presupposes separateness, which it does. Um, Though I, though I guess technically speaking, identity would not presuppose separateness uh, if the identity holds across across all parts and the parts aren't really separate uh, and they aren't really parts. Uh, if two things are identical, then they aren't really two things anymore. Um, and so there is perhaps one way. That's perhaps one way of rescuing the concept of. Uh, correspondence, but I wonder whether the concept of correspondence itself is not uh, philosophically adequate to do what we we want it to do. And um, there is another concept which I think could be used, which is the concept of coherence. Uh, and so, the concept of correspondence kind of implies um, one set of qualities mapping onto another set of qualities. Uh, and so, though it is a relational concept correspondence it, it might imply individuality or separateness on some level whereas the concept of coherence it, it implies a, a deeper a thicker relation um, between entities where they are I- I entangled with one another on a on a deeper level because they have to they have to fit with each other in the sense of um, not contradicting each other and they have to therefore be mutually uh, you know, mutually kind of acceptable to one another on some level. Uh, so we might say that you know two statements are coherent if they don't contradict each other, or else if they, if they justify each other. And so coherence implies a thicker relationship than mere that the mere correspondence. And perhaps um, the problem with equality is that it's very focused on that correspondence relation and doesn't also pay attention to the coherence relation. And so not only uh, has the concept of equality been used to only focus on two of Kant's uh, four categories of thought, focusing on quality and quantity, uh, rather than also relation and modality, um, but also uh, it, it, when it has been used to denote a, a certain relation, namely a relation of correspondence uh, among uh, a certain quality of, of of two or more entities. Uh, that relation of correspondence has been emphasised to an excessive degree, and we, we've lost this view of, of of coherence too. And I think to apply this politically, um, I, I, I think in politics, when we're thinking about what, what's uh, what might be you know linking to uh, Benjamin's PhD thesis uh, about inequality. Like, with inequality being one of the problems. Um, and I think that as well as inequality, it's turned out that um, you know, 
disunity itself, separateness, can itself cause problems. The separation, for instance, between politics and economics, uh, between politics and morality, causing uh, a lot of conflict between these uh, now separate domains, um, colliding with one another, having developed separate logics. Um, and because it's not very easy, uh, straightforward, or desirable to uh, do uh, what Habermas suggests: separate the system from the life world, separate things right, from each this, other. This attempt yeah. to build to build walls between these right, things. Right. It, it's, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thing about coherence is everything implies everything else. Right. right everything right, right. that exists goes with everything else that exists. Right. That's one right. of the remarkable things about the universe. Everything in the universe is in some way connected to everything else, yes. which is also yes. The universe, yeah, and so that—that's what we really mean when we're talking about coherence. So when you make an adjustment to society in some respect, say you change some political input, you expand the suffrage, you give someone the right to vote, you regulate campaign finance, whatever you do, everything that you've left untouched has to still somehow be compatible with that. Uh, and so either everything that you've left untouched will be affected by the reform you've made, or the reform you've made will be affected by everything that you've left untouched. So in the case of most of these procedural input interventions, uh, what ends up happening is that the set of stuff you haven't touched, the distribution of power, uh, still ends up supervening upon the society. It finds new ways of making itself compatible with what you've done, because what you've done isn't powerful enough to actually change the distribution of power. Yeah. So when you don't change the distribution of power, but you change something else, and you suppose that this will have some kind of, will play some kind of role in revising the distribution of power, if you don't actually get to that power distribution, that power distribution is going to produce new phenomena, which enable it to work around the superficial thing that you've Put in the way. Right, right. And it's not just power distribution, but power organization and also the production of power. Uh, and, and back, right. All yeah. of these things go together. Right, and so right. the things that you leave untouched can make the change that you make useless. But the change that you make, because it will seem important in the moment that you're making it, will cause people to be less concerned about those other things. So oftentimes, reform by not accomplishing its real purpose, will thwart its original purpose by creating the perception that that original purpose has been to some degree accomplished or that progress has been made incrementally toward the goal, when really the case is often that not only has no progress been made toward the goal, but the existence of the reform itself becomes a legitimation for keeping things as they are. Right, right, right. And I guess... Yeah, in that sense, um, yeah, coherence seems to denote a general relation among things, whereas correspondence denotes a more a more particular relation. Uh, but perhaps it is useful to have both. The concept of coherence is perhaps more attractive from an you know an ancient than the modern perspective, from a more holistic than an individual um, an individualist perspective. But correspondence, I think, also matters as, as a concept to focus on the particular relations among things. And uh, if with well, it's yeah. certainly a, a useful human heuristic, right? I mean, yeah. dividing things up into parts. I, I don't want it to come off as if I say we should never split things up into parts. It's a useful human heuristic for getting by in life. But I think the thing to remember is that these 
splits into bits that human brains do are heuristics. They're tools for managing our, our lives and for getting along in a great big vast universe that is so huge and so difficult for our minds to comprehend. Right, and right. what we have tended to see more recently is you know, historically there was always an acknowledgement in ancient societies that there is some tension between practical ethics, practical reason, practical life, and what's really true. Right. And that there has to be some kind of synthesis between those things. And what has tended to happen over time is that we've tended to take more and more seriously our heuristic tools that we use to get around and to get along. And we take them very, very seriously. We treat them as if the, the categories that we are inventing for our expediency are really the categories in which we ought to think about things. Mm -hmm. So we start imagining that the little bits and bops, the individuals, the groups, the entities that we're comparing, that, that those things that we're comparing are really real and really are fundamentally distinct and separate in all kinds of essential ways. And I think that that often gets us into trouble. It causes us to think we're accomplishing something when we're not. Right, right. And perhaps a more useful thing to do is to say, well, here are the concepts that people have brought up, or here are the things that seem to be going on. And what's the relationship among these things? And how might these things fit together? Um, so in the, in the way to acknowledge both um, uh, both the apparent separateness of things and the way in which these things that seem separate can be brought together. And I think that that kind of practical application of, of philosophy is quite hard because it's very easy for you know, Plato's philosopher to say, well, look, you know, things aren't really divided. Everything is deep down one and part of, part of a whole and everything is related to everything else. But it's very hard to apply that politically. Um, and also philosophically, in, in the academy, it's quite hard um, because you know ev everything, you know, politics, uh, you know, academia is all embedded within this broader system in which we live, which is you know particular to our time and place. And so we'll, you know, not 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 be giving us the same thoughts as a system in any other time and place. But um, yeah, I think it is worth acknowledging both acknowledging the situation we're in and acknowledging the situation that. Perhaps we think we should be in figuring out a way of getting from from one well, to the and, other, and the pitfalls of any given approach. Because to have something which is tractable to people who have been socialized under a system where they are meant to think in bits, uh, anything that is tractable to people like that also tends to have the potential of reinscribing their separateness from one another. Right. Anything that is comprehensible to people who think in bits can potentially reinforce thinking in bits. Right. And I think, I, and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. because we are accustomed to thinking about this kind of stuff in terms of equality, uh, and because we're used to thinking about these different kinds of, of categories of conceptions of equality, uh, we are always vulnerable when we engage in an equality centered discourse to those same pitfalls which we've previously fallen into so many times of trying to emancipate people with a particular conception of equality, having that conception of equality be bent and, and deformed beyond recognition, and then having uh, uh, 
the, the reforms that are least tractable from the original movement picked up and implemented so that this movement can plausibly claim to be actually accomplishing equality in some sense. Mm. So the term gets bent. The reforms that are useless get appropriated to lend aesthetic weight to what's going on. And you end up back where you started. And you know, what I mean by that is, you know, say you have a movement that's calling for equality. Uh, and one of the things that you suggest is that you know, one of the problems is that there are uh, there's insufficient representation demographically of different groups of people on corporate boards, right? Well, once you've suggested that you would have a more equal society if you accomplished uh, diversity on corporate boards, then insofar as we accomplish diversity on corporate boards, people can try to claim that they've actually accomplished equality, right? Now, that may have just been one component of what you were talking about, but it becomes a way of avoiding having to do all the other things because it's something which is much more easily obtainable than all of the other things for which you've argued. And so not only does it become an insufficient measure, but it becomes a measure which thwarts the other measures which you might have argued for. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I... It, that so it's very dangerous because yeah. all of the stuff that we're that, that we might propose to deal with equality, all of it potentially can lead you into these traps. And so I think not only is it important to you know recognize how people see the world and and what we have to do, but also to to talk about the pitfalls and the traps that can follow from any particular way of understanding equality and trying to act upon right. it. Any particular way has got insidious. Uh, potentialities because of the degree to which equality is uh, a big umbrella concept, right? Right. Uh, but, uh, and and it's so yeah. easy to operationalize it. Like, I don't know if you've seen this meme that goes around where they, they've got the three people and they stand on the boxes and they try to watch the baseball yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this. And one of them is described as, you know, one of these scenarios is described as equality and the other is described as equity. Oh, no. And the implicit <laughs> argument of the drawing is that you should prefer equity to equality. I, I, right? I'm just thinking about sh walls, like shares and <laughs> whenever the term now, equity is used, it's just... <laughs> now, really, in that drawing, the what they're calling equality, the view that they're representing there is a view that nobody has. Nobody realistically has theorists of equality. Nobody affirms that view, right? And the, on the other side of the drawing, they've got a uh, a, a view which is well, you know, one view, but certainly not the only view. And there are lots of other things that you could put on the same side of that drawing that might also be plausible or interesting views. So what they do is they've created a false choice, named the thing that they prefer a new word. So you can learn the new word. And if you learn the new word, then you've learned the good thing that you should be going for. And the old word is to be thrown away, and anyone who uses the old word is to be associated with this view that nobody has. Wrote a blog post about it. I think I'll put it in uh, the, the Patreon reading notes for, for people who listen. If you follow us on Patreon, I, I do put readings for the episodes. That's patreon.com slash political theory 101. I think I'm going to put uh, this blog post I wrote a while back about this 
in, in the notes because this meme has become very, very popular and it highlights what I'm getting at with just how bendable the concept of equality is and how easy it is for people to just appropriate it to try to do whatever they want. And here they've appropriated it even by inventing a new word for a conception of equality, calling it equity, when really what they just have is another theory of equality. And there are many, many theories of equality. We've been talking about them for the last almost two hours, right? And yet, uh, here, not only are they advancing a different theory of equality, but they've invented a special name for it to try to say that it's better than all of the other theories, which are all actually this other theory that yeah. nobody holds and nobody subscribes yeah, to. Yeah. Uh, it's this kind of manipulative thinking. And people with money can just pay people to disseminate memes like this, to make up and disseminate garbage like this, and to uh, propagandize people into particular notions of what equality means or what equity means, if that's a word that we're going to have to use now. Uh, Debt-based financial all of this assets really frustrate. Yeah, that's <laughs> all so I can think about. Yeah, when it connotes <laughs> financial assets too. Yeah, or or the legal principle of equity. That's another connotation that it has. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, if we're well, going to we, do which for Frankel, yeah. a part of the same thing. The, the the law and the profit dimensions of the normative state. By the way. <laughs> yeah, but but you see you see what I'm saying. You, it's just it's very very easy with this concept to play games with it, and that's really what I want to emphasize. I. I am not going to sit here and say this is the right conception of equality, which you guys should all have, uh, but be very careful with this term, because this is a term that, that, that seduces you, and it misleads you a lot into thinking you're getting somewhere when you're not. Right. The thing is, I, 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 I've also you know, ha had this view. I, I wonder whether there's a sense in which the fact that equality is so vague you know, it's both a, a very problematic thing, as you say, but it can also be a potentially you know, fruitful point for analysis. Only if you have control of the discourse. If you have control of the discourse, oh. then the fact that you can turn it into anything you want makes it a very powerful tool for legitimating the state. Well, so if you control the state, you love a word like this because it can mean anything you want. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I wonder, though, whether it can have, have, still have some... Utility, because you know, if the problems are as well as uh, you know, inequality, um, stuff like the disunity of institutions, the, the separation among things, plus scarcity, material scarcity, um, where where moderating the effects of scarcity or overcoming scarcity through technological development could be used to level up rather than level down as a road to equality. So rather than making some people um, um, poorer to get to equality, making everybody richer to get to uh, equality through, through increasing the overall um, um, economic pie through technological development. Um, yeah, starting with some kind of sufficientarianism and scaling it up over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. that would be a way of combining the critiques of scarcity and disunity with the critique of inequality and overcoming dis scarcity, disunity, and inequality, uh, more or less that they're not quite at once. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the thing is, that <laughs> because th this word is so ubiquitous, we're kind of stuck with it because this is the dominant word under which people understand politics and not other words like domination or reciprocity or exploitation or whatever. Uh, this is the word that we're kind of stuck with and the set of discussions surrounding the, surrounding the word are the set of discussions we kind of have to work with. Right, right, right. Uh, what I, what I want to suggest here is that this is to some degree a cage for us, that this word... Uh, 
isn't something that we should necessarily celebrate having to use because it's a word that has been kind of given to us. But but look, as a, but look how as a ostensibly liberating term, which nonetheless often leads us back where I, we start. But look how broadly our discussion has ranged, starting off with this you know, with this concept of equality. Um, yeah, this is the horrible thing about it. It can become anything, and therefore, whoever has the power in the discourse to make the term mean what they want it to mean will tend to get what they want out of the term. And rarely, uh, it's very rare that the people who need the word equality to help them will be the ones in position to define it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I see that. I think what I mean, the fact that equality is so politically difficult is one of the reasons why it's so philosophically interesting because. We're able to have this wide-ranging discussion out of the out of the term, um, even though yeah, I'll, gi- yeah. I, I'll give you that. Of course, that <laughs> itself becomes seductive because it leads political theorists to endlessly renegotiate this term in a debate that nobody can win, and that's part of what makes it fun and intellectually interesting. But it's it also means that no progress is made on any substantive political goals. But we, we've just fleshed out a, a few substantive. You know, um, I mean, one one advantage of this discussion is that talking about equality has brought in some concepts from philosophy into the discussion about politics, which I think is important because I think often um, often these things get siloed off from one another. Um, I guess what I want to say is that the concept of equality has so far been used to separate things out, whereas I want to use the concept of equality to bring things back together again. And I don't think equality itself is doing this work, but thinking about the term and, the, and partly thinking about the problems of the term can get us towards thinking about the broader unity of things and about how these, how, both how different conceptions of equality and how you know, political concepts other than equality, um, like unity, like scarcity, like domination and exploitation, need to be considered in order to get a, a, a more full picture of the political. Yes. Well, if I didn't think talking about it with you would be helpful, I wouldn't have said that we should talk about equality this <laughs> week. So I, I will agree with you there. All right. I think I think we should wrap up. We're getting close to two hours. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, guys, for listening. Like I said, you can follow us along at patreon.com slash political theory 101. If you want to see our reading lists and, and message us with random questions and stuff like that. All right. Have a great great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.